Stocks now uh, under the water. Now uh, they're under attack, and um, the, share, the share price is um, seriously left behind the, the benchmark index. That's, this is the clear reason. Okay. Now, before we go, some sad news for me and our listeners. As mentioned earlier, mm. this is Stuart's last appearance on Money Talk for this year. It's going to take a break from the show and from Hong Kong. So, Stu, you've been our regular Wednesday guest since Money Talk first started six years ago this week, actually. And uh, we've enjoyed your contributions over the years. We're going to miss your shrewd observations each week. But we wish you well on your travels and hope to have you back when you return next year. Oh, thank you very much, Peter. It's been a great uh, enjoyment to me to do this every Wednesday. I've only done Wednesdays, as you know. And, uh, in fact, I first started doing something similar with uh, your predecessor, Brian Curtis, as, as you'll also be aware. So, uh, yes, I've in, uh, thoroughly enjoyed being on the show, and it's been something where I, I believe what we've tried to do is to make a little bit more fun talking yes. about finance, <laughs> which is hard, hard, hard work. It's hard. <laughs> um, I'd also like to say thank you to Barry as well at the other end in Washington because he's been on every Wednesday with me as well. And uh, I, I, you know, I, hope, I hope to say that we've had a great partnership and I'd like to resume that at some point in the future. So thank you, Peter. Here, here. Thank you, Barry and uh, Dickie here Stuart. today you, and, and all the other guests that we've had in on our Wednesday. Okay, so that's Stuart, Stuart Allcroft, Chairman of City Trust. You also heard Dickie Wong, Head of Research at Kingston Securities. And our Thank you, and good luck to you, Stuart. And our international economics correspondent over in Washington, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, the SX200 in Australia, uh, more or less flat. Similar story for the Nikkei 225 as well in Japan. Looks like a small decline for the Hang Seng at the open this morning of about 30 or uh, 40 points. And just want to let you know that on tomorrow's programme, Hong Kong's Secretary for Labour and Welfare, Lord Chi Kwong, he'll be joining us to discuss the latest jobs data, which will be released later today. So do tune in tomorrow after the 8 o'clock news for that. Back chats coming up with Hugh Chiverton and Anna Fenton in just one moment. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, few showers, very hot during the day. Maximum temperature around 33 degrees. Sunny periods in uh, over the next few days and very hot during the weekend. There is a very hot weather warning in force. And the temperature right now, 29 degrees, 86% relative humidity. Just gone 8.32, Barry O'Rourke has the half-hour news. The government has tightened the rules for new arrivals who will face 14 days of quarantine even if they return a positive COVID antibody test instead of seven days as at present. Chief Executive Carrie Lamb says the government is following expert advice to err on the side of caution. Here's infectious diseases expert Joseph Tsang. I think it's a very uh, important uh, actions, uh, especially we are facing uh, more and more cases uh, surrounding us uh, being a Delta variant. So uh, it's a, a very appropriate time for us to adjust the measurements right now. The new rules take effect on Friday. The government also says it's keeping social distancing measures for another two weeks until September the 1st. However, staff of catering businesses who haven't been vaccinated will be tested every seven days, up from every 14 days. The Taliban have sought to reassure the rest of the world that Afghanistan will not be used as a base for foreign fighters to spread terrorism. Addressing his first news conference in Kabul, the Taliban spokesman, Sabimullah Mujahid, also insisted women would be able to work, study and be actively involved in society as long as they complied with Sharia law. He spoke through an interpreter. 
Women will be afforded all their rights, uh, whether it is in work or other activities, because women are a key part of society. And uh, we are guaranteeing all their rights within the limits of Islam. The Taliban have ordered their fighters not to enter people's homes and urged the government employees to return to work. The authorities in Haiti say now more than 1,900 people are known to have died in Saturday's powerful earthquake, an increase of 500 on the previous figure. A spokesman for the United Nations Children's Fund, Bruno Maes, said more than half a million children now had limited or no access to shelter, safe water and food. The BBC's Candice Piet reports. Mr Mace said countless Haitian families had lost everything in the quake and many had been left standing in the floodwaters left behind by a tropical storm on Monday night. He said UNICEF had been supplying emergency medical kits to hospitals in Le Case, the city in the southwest of the country most damaged by the earthquake, where tent cities are already springing up. The UN has pledged $8 million in emergency aid to Haiti. Back locally, and Hong Kong will celebrate its Olympians' historic medal hall with a parade tomorrow morning. The SAR's athletes, coaches and other delegation members will ride in two open-top buses from Hung Hom to the Si Chu Centre of the West Kowloon Cultural District for a welcoming ceremony. Officials say Nathan Road and Canton Road are the best viewing locations and the buses are due to arrive there at around 9.40am tomorrow morning. They reminded the, pub the public to observe social distancing during the event. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Anna, good morning to you. Good morning, everybody. COVID-19 and plastic cutlery today. People arriving in Hong Kong will no longer be able to undergo a shorter quarantine with a positive antibody test. And the government will also move 15 nations, including Thailand, the United States and the Netherlands, to the high-risk category, meaning that vaccinated residents returning home must spend 21 days in hotel quarantine. Tourists and unvaccinated residents are not allowed to enter. A foreign domestic was confirmed confirmed with COVID-19 after she completed her quarantine. Health officials say she might have contracted the virus from other people staying in the quarantine hotel. Meanwhile, Singapore starts to ease COVID restrictions as the city-state hits some 75% of full vaccination rate. What can we learn from Singapore? Uh, is our 70% vaccination rate enough for us to open up? How do businesses cope with the changing quarantine rules? Let us know your thoughts, questions and comments. As ever, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at RTHK. You can call us and our number is 233-88266, 233-88266. After 9.15, we're talking about plastic cutlery. Green Group's calling for a total ban uh, by 2025. We're currently using some 2,000 pieces a person each year. Uh, what do you think of the uh, proposals? Drop us a line. Backchat at rthk.hk. Um, we're joined uh, in the first part of the programme, actually for the whole part of the programme, by uh, this morning by uh, Benjamin Cowling. Once again, Professor Cowling is head of the Division of Epidemiology Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health. Also joined now by Paul Tambaya, who's president of the Asia-Pacific Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infection in Singapore. And uh, later we're going to be talking to the general manager of the Dutch Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Alonso, in an email, says... 
Um, yeah, this is from today. As you reported on your news this morning, medical exper experts now suspect that the domestic helper was confirmed with COVID, might have contracted the virus during her stay at the quarantine hotel. Assuming this proves to be true, it would suggest the government's decision yesterday to implement more restrictive quarantine rules for returning residents is unwarranted and is a reckless and knee-jerk reaction that further erodes our city's reputation as a global city. A couple of other observations on the two recent local cases in Hong Kong, both of which point to government oversights. First, experts claim that ventilation at the quarantine hotel in question, the Dorset, wasn't up to standard to avoid cross-infections. Why doesn't the government check that hotels satisfy all the COVID checklists before they're designated as a quarantine property? Second, as for the case concerning the airport worker, it beggars belief that a waitress at the airport, and customary one of the most likely places that the Delta variant would be transmitted, is allowed to work without being vaccinated. Those observations from Lonzo. We've got more, which we'll get to in a, in the meantime. Uh, but uh, first, Professor Cowley, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us once again. Uh, do you agree? Is this the uh, wise course of action, the government's uh, changes, which are going to be coming into effect this, at the end of this week? Uh, certainly in the short term, it will make us safer. But I'm still thinking about the medium term and the longer term and what's really the, the plan for Hong Kong. Are we going to follow the Singaporean path of uh, gradually relaxing the measures and going back to normal uh, as we get higher and higher vaccine coverage? Because I think 70 percent, 80 percent coverage is a possibility for Hong Kong. Or are we going to follow the mainland approach of really trying to keep the virus out uh, with very expensive and, and, and difficult measures for the next six months, the next 12 months. Uh, are we going to be able to get a bubble with the mainland? Uh, if we are, I think that would be great. But if we're not able to get a bubble with the mainland, which hasn't worked out in the past year, uh, we've had a one-way bubble, but not a two-way bubble. Um, I, I'm worried that we're going to be stuck in Hong Kong with the worst of both worlds. I mean, I think it, it, it would be great if we can have zero COVID and a bubble with the mainland. Separately, it might be a good idea if we can learn to live with the virus like Singapore are doing. But right now, I, I can't see whether we're going in either of those directions or we're stuck with, with neither of them and the worst of both worlds. Um, Professor Scullin, can we just start with idiot logic here? If the helper caught the virus in quarantine, why would you increase quarantine? Uh, well, the, the recommendation to increase the length of quarantine was made without that, that information being available. It was made on the, the... At that time, the evidence was that the helper had had a very long incubation period, which was perhaps unusually long in terms of how long between infection and when they start shedding virus. And it maybe changed the, the rationale for how long quarantine should be. And then the following day, it, the news came out that actually, uh, apparently that the helper had likely been infected in the quarantine hotel. And it's unfortunate that that information wasn't available a day earlier, because I think it might have led to a, uh, a different discussion. But this is caused the people, chaos. They were on the same flight, though, weren't they? Isn't it also quite but possible that they, they were not on the same flight? They not, not on the they, I don't think so. I, I thought don't they were so. on the same flight, but seated far apart. Maybe. Okay. Uh, maybe. I, yeah. I just know that they were they were linked with the with the sequence. That's but this is this has caused complete chaos for anybody who was travelling back to Hong Kong. Just mayhem. Yeah, I, I think that the, the it does the, the the decision does depend on what's the the longer term strategy of Hong Kong. If we're really determined to stay at zero COVID then to some extent longer quarantines make sense and, and suppressing travel, reducing travel, discouraging travel makes sense. But if we're going to follow the Singaporean approach, then actually the opposite is true and we want to encourage people to get vaccinated so we can return to normal more quickly and giving relaxations of policies for vaccinated travellers with antibodies as well makes perfect sense. And I think that was the rationale for the earlier decision to shorten the quarantine. We know that in the short term there's a risk, you know, 1% risk, 2% risk, 5% risk that a case might come in. We can deal with it if it does come in. 
but when we were doing our Hong Kong U surveys in the past six months about what what what's the reason for hesitancy and what would encourage people to get vaccinated, quarantine free travel was the top the the, the most uh, the, the most common answer in those surveys. Also, full day schools for children and so on. And so, after encouraging people to get vaccinated with the the opportunity for reduced quarantine on travel, people going to get vaccinated, the vaccination rate coming up a long way over what it was some months ago and what it was predicted to be some months ago. Now it's taken away again. And I, I feel a little bit disappointed for the people that have especially gone to get vaccinated because of the hope of reduced quarantines and now can't. But where's the incentive to get vaccinated when this keeps happening? So if, if Hong Kong's going to follow the mainland approach of a zero COVID approach with very tight controls, then actually vaccination coverage is not the priority. The priority is reducing the number of imported cases into the community and dealing with infections when they occur. And you can do that whether or not there's a high vaccine coverage. So if your question is asking, why don't the government do more to encourage vaccination uptake? It depends what their long-term objective is, because if the long-term objective is zero COVID, then that's not a necessary step along the path for that. Well, let's find out more what's happening in, in Singapore. So we're joined by uh, uh, Professor uh, Paul Tambaya. He's president of the Asia-Pacific Society of Clinical Microbiology and in Infection. Dr. Tambaya, good morning to you. Hi. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. What, what's actually happening now in, in, uh, in Singapore in terms of cases and in terms of uh, policy? Well, it's uh, first of all, uh, hi Ben. It's, it's been a, it's been a while. Hi. Uh, yes, uh, the vaccination rates in Singapore are pretty high. The official MOH report cites the figure of about seventy six percent of the population that's fully vaccinated. Um, however, you know Singapore has a, a large floating population, so it's unclear whether this includes uh, short term visit pass holders, uh, and these uh, are, are individuals. Uh, who actually have seeded uh, large outbreaks. Uh, recently, we had a big outbreak in the fishery port and also in the karaoke lounges. And they they were out of reach of the vaccination programs. And I think some efforts are being made to, to reach out to this group. Um, and what we have right now is we have about 40 to 60 new cases every day, most of them linked uh, indirectly to these uh, two clusters in the fishery port and the karaoke uh, lounges. But the good news is that most of these cases have been mild. And uh, even according to the um, uh, MOH report, even among the unvaccinated, 90% of them have had mild disease. So I think that's giving us a bit more confidence uh, in the, to move ahead with the living with the virus strategy. And what will that consist of? What does that mean, living with the virus? Yeah, so the ministers actually wrote an editorial in the Straits Times about a month ago where, where they said that you know they were looking at um, concentrating on protecting the vulnerable, uh, identifying large clusters, and minimizing disruption to the healthcare system. So, um, and, and you know that made a lot of sense. The idea is that you ramp up vaccination because vaccination apparently is not as good at preventing transmission as it is at preventing you from getting severe disease and death. Um, and, and there was a lot of optimism when they wrote about that. But I, you know, I, I need to say this, but. Um, Hong Kong reacted by saying, if that's the case, we're going to, not going to consider the bubble with Singapore. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was a lot of second thinking and, and questions about whether, whether this strategy was a, was a good one. But uh, to their credit, they've been moving slowly but surely towards this uh, living with the virus approach. So we've seen a, a big uptake of cases in Singapore recently. How, how's this affecting the morale of the community, would you say? Well, you know, the, the impact of the cases uh, on, on individuals is not that high. But what has an impact is the restriction. 
because right now, you know, as of about a week ago, uh, we're allowed to have five people dining in in a, in a restaurant, but all of them have to be fully vaccinated for a, for a hawker center or an open air uh, coffee shop. Um, you, you can be unvaccinated, but again, there's a cap of five people. For visitors to households, you you, there's a cap of five people. There's a limit on sporting events, on cultural events. And so these things are, are difficult and they have an impact on uh, on people who run these F&B establishments. And what about openness to the world? What about um, uh, quarantine requirements and so on? Yeah, quarantine requirements, you know, for a while we went to 21 days um, when there was initial concern about this uh, long incubation period, which I, I just heard has been an issue in Hong Kong. But uh, uh, about a month ago, we went back to 14 days when we looked at our data and, uh, and also data from Public Health England, which actually has probably the best uh, uh, data analyzing the impact of the different variants. And, and there's no real difference in incubation period and there's no good evidence that, uh, you know, the Delta variant, which incidentally has become the, the dominant strain worldwide, um, has got a longer incubation period than, than Alpha or any of the other uh, variants itself. So three weeks is unnecessary? I think so. And, you know, my sister came to visit my mom, who's not well, and she came just at the point in time when they extended it to three weeks. And it was a real hardship, I can tell you. I, I, I hear what you were saying just now. Um, because, you know, all of a sudden she had to apply for an extra week of leave, and, and it was just uh, uh, she had to push back all kinds of uh, things that she was doing. And, uh, and you know, my mom had to try and understand why we she had to wait another week for my sister to appear, and it was it was really really hard. But uh, so, but I think um, you know the the data does seem to suggest that that three weeks probably unnecessary, which is why we've gone back to two weeks. And would you say this has public support? This idea of living with the with the with the virus because um, it's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? Do people it, think it's worth it, it? It is, it is. But you know, everything in medicine is a risk versus benefit calculation. Uh, and it's hard to tell what the public really thinks in Singapore because, uh, you know, we don't have opinion polls and stuff like that. But we do have a lot of chatter in social media. Uh, and there is uh, a decreasing group of individuals who believe that we should go for zero COVID. You know, um, when New Zealand announced that they were going to shut down the entire country for three days just because they had one case of locally transmitted uh, disease, there were a handful of people who said we should do that. But I think they were, they were drowned out by the vast majority of people who just want to get on with their lives. Mm. So, Professor Cowling, can we just go back to this subject of the antibodies, which seems to come up and go down again every other week? I thought that we were going to continue favouring people with positive antibodies, but that seems to have been forgotten and ignored in this latest quarantine fienza, f- I, frenzy. I think prior to the Delta variant, there was good evidence that if a person was fully vaccinated and had a detectable level of antibodies, they had a much lower risk of getting infected, a very, very low risk of getting infected. So it made a lot of sense to give a big discount on quarantine because although the incubation period could, could still be the same length if you got infected, the chance of getting infected in the first place is so much lower that seven days made, made a lot of sense. But with the Delta variant, unfortunately, that there's evidence of quite a number of breakthrough infections, maybe the vaccine not working quite as well against mild infections particularly and so that then it makes maybe less sense to give the discount for the delta variant which is prevalent worldwide Um, and if you're going back to 14 days then whether or not you have the antibody result doesn't make make so much difference um but but again i I would say it does depend on our on our longer term strategy because if we want to follow the singaporean model which i think is is the best actually that the living with the virus is, is the best longer term strategy then in the short term the priority is to get the vaccination coverage up and then 
one way to do that is is with the the popular choice of of reducing on arrival quarantines and reducing other things for vaccinated people even though there's a short-term risk associated with that in the longer term it's going to be better for everybody uh to have a high vaccination coverage and get on with our lives uh so i think that was the calculation before but for whatever reason it, it's changed and now we're back to the more like a, a zero covid approach where we can't tolerate any risk in terms of the on arrival quarantines but at the same time we're okay with the diplomats children and the finance ceos coming in without quarantine and and uh and unvaccinated staff in high-risk locations and, and so on which i so the risk is not zero Let, let's say it that way that, that the risk of cases coming in is not zero and moving from 14 to 21 days quarantine wouldn't change that because that there's a, a minimal impact on on the people that are arriving on the risk of importation there but uh, actually, if anything, making their risk higher because they're spending another seven days in a quarantine hotel where we know transmissions occurred a number of times. Professor mm. Tambaya, I mean, what's happened in Singapore uh, is uh, even more so in, in Israel, it seems, where they have a very high vaccination rate, the highest in the world. Uh, and they've had a very, not, not the highest in the world? Only, say, only about 60% no, fully vaccinated. <laughs> okay, not as high as Singapore. All right, quite high. Um, uh, and uh, and yet there's been a very big increase uh, in, in cases uh, in, in Israel, uh, a real a real spike. And some suggestion there that's because a, a lot of the people were, were vaccinated very early on and, and maybe it's basically worn off. Does that mean that we're going to have to have third uh, injections perhaps? We're going to have to keep keep uh, uh vaccinating people and 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 how is you know how would if we talk about living with covid in the way that we live with flu are they comparable are they comparable diseases professor tambaya well you know there's, there's similarities and there are differences between covid and the flu i mean covid has a, a longer incubation period uh, but covid and the flu are both infectious the day before the onset of symptoms uh, transmission is very similar, uh, primarily by close contact and by droplets, but also occasionally by uh, aerosols. Um, in Singapore, the flu actually causes a significant uh, number of deaths every year, and it's just under the radar. Um, coming to your question about Israel, this is actually a fascinating question because, um, uh, as you pointed out, there have been an increase in cases, uh, including uh, a number of severe cases in Israel. And one of the questions which I've had is whether this is due to the vaccination schedule. Because in Israel, you are vaccinated with two doses of Pfizer, uh, three weeks apart. Um, you know, the UK has seen a, a surge in cases, but primarily among un unvaccinated individuals. Uh, and there's been very low uh, death rates or severe illness rates in the UK. And what happened in the UK was, um, as, again, I'm sure you remember, in the beginning of the year, they were a bit concerned that they, they didn't have enough vaccines. So they lengthened the interval between uh, doses. And that was based on, on an accident in, in one of the clinical trials where they found that individuals who, who, instead of getting four weeks in between doses, got like six to eight weeks in between doses, and they tended to have a better immune response. So this is a scientific question, but I think it's a fascinating one as to whether what is the optimal dosing regime for the vaccine. And it may be that three weeks is too short and that we need to go to six to eight weeks. And in a way, you know, if we do a round of boosters, you know, that's going to be six months after the first dose. So there are vaccines which work like that, like the hepatitis B vaccine. It's zero, one in six months. And that works a lot better than, say, zero, one in two months. 
so, um, you know, this is the kind of work that Ben and, and colleagues uh, in, in uh, HKU and, and academics in Singapore are looking at. But I think uh, we haven't heard the end of the story. Okay. We've got some emails which, we, which we'll get to in, in just a second. But, but Ben Canning, I think you're also one of the researchers uh, uh, from the University of Hong Kong looking at the incidence of Bell's palsy. Uh, with different vaccines, is that right? You're That's right. So yeah. we, we looked at Bell's palsy, and you have to recognise there's a background rate of Bell's palsy. It's a it's a temporary facial paralysis. It happens from time to time, particularly in older people. It's temporary. It's yeah. temporary. It's, mm -hmm. it's temporary. And uh, that, so there's a background rate. So w when you see cases occurring after vaccination, you can't attribute it to vaccination because it could have been something that happened anyway. But what what was looked at in this study, made, led by the Department of Pharmacy in, in Hong Kong U, was uh, was looking at how many cases were there and, and how did that compare to the background rate? And there were more there were a few more cases than would have been expected based on the background rate. So um, so we got, we got in that publication, we got the rate. I think it was for every 10 or 100,000 people vaccinated. Sorry, I can't remember if it was 10,000. I think it was 100,000. It was, it was two to four excess cases of Bell's palsy, which is in line with other vaccines, actually. But there hasn't been a lot of data for, for the COVID vaccines on that so far. So it's, it's something that we... We would have kind of anticipated. It's one of the things on the list of potential rare but more serious adverse effects. And this study is one that confirms that it is present for this vaccine. And you, yeah, you did find twice as many cases with uh, with uh, uh, Sinovac as opposed to the Pfizer. Yeah, there were more. There were more with Sinovac. That's right. But. But is that significant? Because they're quite low. It's quite a low level anyway. It, it's still very low. So I would say it's still the, the kind of thing that. Although this is a, a risk of the vaccine, the benefits still substantially outweigh the risks. And it's one of the risks of the vaccine that we kind of anticipated. We know that in a, there's rare chance of a very serious allergic reaction. There's a, a chance, a very rare chance of this kind of uh, reaction as well. So it, it, it's not, I, wouldn't, I would say it's not too surprising. Um, we prefer vaccines that don't have any of these reactions. But of course, if, if the vaccine's got a, an active component, is stimulating the immune system, then there's always going to be a risk of, of, a, of, a, of a serious reaction. And in the clinical trials early on, that one of the objectives is to make sure that the risks are very, very low and the benefits are very, very high. Okay. Um, uh, Leon says, question for Ben Cowling. <clears throat> when Carrie Lam says she's taking advice from experts when the government decides to tighten quarantine rules, is Professor Cowling in that group of experts which advises her? If not, he should be. Uh, are you? Well, I, I'm one of a, a large group of experts who, who provide uh, uh, advice to, to uh, the government through scientific committees. So I'm, I'm one of many. <laughs> okay. Leon says he's more sensible and logical than... Uh, other doctors, Dr. Lunky Chu, whose zero COVID policy will destroy Hong Kong's economy. Um, uh, Jim says, uh, as previous, mentioned previously, possible contaminated items, this is an overlooked vector, are shoved into your room from outside the hotel's controls during quarantine, creating a possible contamination uh, vector. Um, uh, and... Uh, let me uh, go. Dan says a simple question. Do quarantines work? How many of those who have suffered physically and emotionally through 14 or 21 days of solitary confinement in Hong Kong actually had COVID-19? Well, the objective is to prevent importation into Hong Kong because we know if there's an importation coming in, uh, there's a chance it can spread. And if you look at what happened with Nanjing in China, very, very quickly, one importation spread across Nanjing, spread to other cities in China. Uh, in the past in Hong Kong, we had our second wave, third wave, fourth wave triggered by importation. We've had a, quite a period of time now without COVID in the community, and that's because we've avoided importations. If we stopped doing the on-arrival quarantines, the virus would keep coming in, and sooner or later we'd have outbreaks. 
Um, and then we'd have to go back to the measures we used to control the second wave, the third wave and the fourth wave, working at home, uh, closing other things and, you know, staying apart from each other for, for a period of time until the numbers go back to under zero. So in a zero COVID approach, one of the priorities is to prevent importations, because if there is an importation, it takes a lot of trouble to deal with it. Do we have to match the mainland's policy? I don't uh, think we have to. I, I I, I'm, I'm not an expert in all of the, the politics and whatever, but I know that there was a lot of talk early on about a bubble with the mainland and, and there was the idea yeah. that if we're a, a one month free of COVID, then they'll think about it. And, and, and we've, it was, we've done that. And it was two months free of COVID. And yeah. then there were other conditions as well. Yeah. And I, I have the impression, I, I would say the impression that, that there's not an enormous amount of enthusiasm. With the Singapore bubble, I think there was a lot of enthusiasm on both sides. And with the mainland bubble, I haven't seen but the same we- level of... If we're opening borders with the mainland is the priority, then we'd have to match their policy. That's right. Because they wouldn't that's trust right. us any otherwise. That's right. And the, and the latest quarantine policy is kind of matching that. So if that's the plan, then let's have a timeline for it and let's see the conditions for what we need to do to open the border with the mainland. Because I, what I'm worried about is what I said earlier on, that, that if we're aiming for zero COVID and opening the border with the mainland, but that doesn't happen, if the boundary doesn't open, then we're stuck with the worst of both worlds because we could have been going the other way, the Singaporean approach and learning to live with the virus. I mean, there's, for example, there's a piece in the South China Morning Post today by somebody arguing in support of the, of the zero COVID approach in the mainland, uh, basically because of the implications for, for health care, that they don't have the resources uh, for the number of cases that would, if you, if you took the living with COVID approach, um, the health system simply couldn't cope. I, well, I, I would say with the third dose. So I've just seen some studies mm. being done in, in the mainland with a third dose. So as, as Paul said, zero, one, and then six months. And after six months, after that third dose, actually, it's a fantastic immune response. Uh, it's, it's not quite as good as with BioNTech, but it's really much better than after the second dose. So I, I don't think it's true that, the, 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 that an exit wave in, in the mainland would, would overwhelm the healthcare system, but they may not want that to happen after so long without any cases at all. Okay. You know, if you've done 18 months with zero COVID, then, uh, you know, may, maybe you're, you're OK to continue that for, for the foreseeable future. So just to be okay, clear... Sorry, 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 we're out of time. <laughs> Hold that thought, Anna. Uh, Paul Tambaya, thank you very much indeed for, for joining thank us. Thank you. is the president of the Asia-Pacific Society of Clinical Microbiology uh, and uh, Infection. We're going to break now for the uh, news and uh, continue. We'll be joined by the general manager of the Dutch Chamber of Commerce. Drop us a line, backchat at rthk.hk. The weather before the news, sunny periods and a few showers forecast for today. Very hot, temperatures up to 33 degrees, sunny periods and a few showers the next couple of days. 29 Celsius now, humidity 84%. Largest city, Auckland. All five have the Delta variant. New Zealand started a nationwide lockdown at midnight local time. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Anna Fenton and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about aspects of uh, COVID. Uh, we were hearing from Singapore in the first part of the programme. We're joined now by uh, Tom Back, who's General Manager of the Dutch Chamber of Commerce uh, in Hong Kong. Later, we're going to be talking about use of plastic cutlery. Uh, massive numbers are, are used, uh, currently around 2,000 pieces per person uh, a year uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, what's going on uh, and how can we reduce that number? 
Uh, we want to hear from you, of course, so you can email back to the .hk as ever. When we talk about COVID, we've got a lot of emails. Let's uh, uh, get going on some of those. And, of course, we're also joined by Professor Benjamin Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Just another reminder that uh, uh, Professor Cowling is uh, uh, not a medical doctor. So, uh, yeah, just when it comes to questions uh, and, and comments. Uh, MT says, uh, why does Carrie Lam try and portray that she and her government are making decisions? She's told what to say by experts that follow the China policy of zero cases. She's a mouthpiece only, and the government has no policy beyond the Exco meeting every Tuesday. Um, Rick says, if New Zealand can lock down for one case, we here have no chance with these idiots running the asylum. One case, this poor person wouldn't have been affected but for a filthy hotel. You really couldn't make this stupid madness up. That's from Rick. Uh, Paul in Taipo says, let me get this straight. If the vaccines are not working, then the answer is more vaccines or different intervals between vaccines. This is basically the more cowbell sketch from Saturday Night Live with the difference that we are dealing with people's lives and freedoms. Please stop this nonsense. That's uh, from Paul. Uh, Martin says, it appears with the Delta variant achieving herd immunity is not possible. Israel says Pfizer COVID vaccine is just 39% effective as Delta spreads and vaccinated people are still able to be infected and transmit the virus. In another study in Minnesota, USA Pfizer's effectiveness dropped to 42%. In fact, the infection rates among vaccinated and unvaccinated people appear to be similar. This makes new variants more likely to emerge. Some might even be better at transmitting among vaccinated populations. Instead, to letting run Delta and new variants running wild like in the US or UK, the approach China, New Zealand and Australia are taking, keeping their borders closed, seems to be the right approach in order to buy more time until a truly global vaccine programme kicks in. Vaccine production capacity has increased. New vaccines and treatments can be found. Maybe your guest can comment further on this. That's from Martin. First counting? Yeah, that, that was not really coherent. So firstly, herd immunity is possible. Herd immunity is a feature of every every epidemic, actually. The, the, the reason epidemics come to an end, the flu season comes to an end every winter, is because we reach herd immunity. I think maybe he was saying that we can't get to herd immunity through vaccination alone, which we've recognised for a while. I think the only chance for Hong Kong was to use BioNTech vaccine for everybody to get herd immunity, and we, we've got two different vaccines being used in Hong Kong. And as for the idea that that if we stay at zero covid until the whole world is vaccinated as as the the comment said uh there's there's breakthrough infections even in vaccinated people so so i don't think the situation is going to change in a year's time the question is what we do now we could continue with zero covid for another year and we'll have better health health outcomes in the short term but there's serious damage to the economy done by zero covid and serious damage in other aspects of people's health uh done by zero covid so i think it, uh, for now I think we've got to look at a strategy where we learn to live with the virus, mm. because if, if even a greater fraction of the world moved on to a zero COVID strategy, the virus is not going to disappear. It's still going to be around. Uh, it's still going to figure out ways to get around immunity in the population in the longer term. It's something that we're going to have to live with, like flu. OK. Uh, our number is 233-88266. We've got a caller now on the line. Anthony. Anthony, good morning. Uh, good morning. Yeah, I've heard all of your very sensible comments from your... Uh, commentators such as uh, Professor Cowling and the gentleman from Singapore. But I have to tell you, I was absolutely livid when I saw that announcement on Monday and even more angry when I see the South China Morning Post today with this 21 days quarantine. I've been in Hong Kong since 1975. I divide my time between Thailand and Hong Kong and I run a business here 
and it's completely impossible to do that with the 21-day restriction and the zero-COVID policy. Hong Kong can survive all of the mismanagement and disasters relating to the political situation, but it cannot and will not survive a zero-COVID strategy. That's my clear thought. Okay, Anthony, many thanks for your call. 233-88266 is, is our number. Also joining us, as I say, is uh, Tom Back here now. He's the General Manager of the Dutch Chamber of Commerce uh, in Hong Kong. Mr. Back, good morning to you. Good morning, you. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us today. So, I mean, the reports like in uh, Bloomberg that um, uh, um, uh, international chambers and so on were not happy with the changes to the, to the restrictions, um, COVID-related restrictions uh, in, in Hong Kong. What's the re reaction of, the, of your chamber? Yes, yeah, thank uh, you. The, yeah, the reaction is very surprised, I must say, confused and also frustrated. Um, as a few weeks ago, yeah, the, the restrictions were actually relaxed. Uh, a new classification system was introduced uh, in Hong Kong. And therefore, yeah, members of us, the Dutch business community, had expectations. They were able to travel back to the Netherlands for holidays, visiting family. Uh, what we are hearing now from them is that they're basically stuck in, uh, in the Netherlands and not able to return. Yeah, so uh, uh, we are also hearing that uh, people who are scrambling to get back have difficulties to, to book a hotel uh, uh, currently in, in Hong Kong. So there is also limitation on that. Um, and there's, there is confusion because the COVID situation in the Netherlands, like in many European countries, is actually improving. And so the, the, the question for a lot of members of us is uh, why now and uh, uh, why this so-called upgrade uh, from, from B to, to A as the Netherlands? So that's, that's the first reaction from the business community. I think there's also a piece in the post saying this is a fluid situation uh, all over the world. People have to chop, chop and change the rules according to the to the latest evidence. You Certainly. accept that? Certainly, of course, it's difficult for a government to cope with uh, with COVID. You see that all over the world. Um, policy reactions are different. Uh, the problem, however, is that it's never really clear uh, why, uh, let's say, these uh, these extra restrictions are introduced and on the basis of which criteria. Yeah? So. As I said, the situation in the Netherlands is improving. So you actually didn't expect that all of a sudden uh, uh, people would have to quarantine, uh, uh, let's say, for three weeks again. So if there was more clarity and transparency uh, on these new restrictions, then people would perhaps understand. Uh, but at this moment, there is no uh, understanding. No, I think that's the problem, isn't it? Professor Cowling, can I bring in a totally different subject here, which is treatments? And why is it that the FDA, the EMA and the WHO, despite 60 randomised control double-blind trials of ivermectin, are blocking its use as a very effective treatment for the virus? Oh, that's a good question. I, I'm aware of that, that research and I don't understand that, that decision as well. But I'm not involved in treating COVID patients, so I'm, I'm not the person that's, that's using ivermectin. But I've seen the same results and I had the same question as you about why isn't it taken more seriously? Could we say that so much global commitment at a very high financial level to drug companies and purchase of virus um, vaccinations, not just short term but long term, is getting in the way of effective treatments? I, I think we need both, though. And I I don't think that, that if we have a really effective treatment, then, then we won't need vaccines. We, we need both, actually. And uh, there's, even with vaccines at a high coverage, we know there's still people getting infected. There's still breakthrough infections, even some severe infections. And so if we can have better treatments, I think it would be ideal. And I, I agree with you that that should be looked at more seriously. 
what would it take for... I mean, ivermectin's been around for, for since the 60s, so there's no money to be made by the drug companies because it's a repurposed drug, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I don't know. And I, I, I recently gave a presentation at the Show about, about reducing the dose of vaccines as well because we recognise that vaccines are not going to be available for the whole world for, for another year or more. And if we reduce the dose, actually the, the vaccine performance is still quite good and you can give more people doses more quickly if you, if you spread out the doses. But again, that's another thing that's not really being taken seriously and it's, it's kind of frustrating. Uh, Tom Becker, what's actually the, the situation like in, in the Netherlands at the moment when it comes to infections? I see reports of 17,000 new cases uh, last True. week. That's a, that's a huge number, isn't it? That's uh, perhaps a huge number, especially if you compare it to here. Uh, but there's already a huge decrease compared to a, a couple of weeks ago when the rate was around 70,000 uh, per week. So it's less than uh, one third compared to four weeks ago. So numbers are rapidly declining. And at the same time, uh, the vaccine rate is increasing. Yeah? So we are almost at 70 percent uh, with people with a single jab and close to 60 percent uh, people who ha are fully vaccinated in the Netherlands. So you see that, yes, there are people getting infected. At the same time, uh, the people in hospital uh, are much more limited uh, compared to, for example, last year. Eh? So the vaccines are really helping, and I definitely agree with the other speakers on your show uh, yeah, that that is the way out for Hong Kong as well. Eh? So, uh, uh, yeah, the zero infection policy yeah, is a questionable one for the, for the longer term, certainly for business. What we do know for certain is that it impacts business a lot. But 17,000, what's the population of the Netherlands? It's 17 million, around 17. 17 million, okay, and, and 17,000 cases in, in a week. Sure. That's a pretty high incidence. Surely that's high risk. That's why you've been moved to the high risk, isn't it? Simple as that. I think... Do, that, do, do, yeah. are there, are, do you know yeah. what the criteria are? I think you've been... Yeah. Yeah. Quoted as saying that there's no transparency. Yes, sure. So that is that is the problem, basically. Yeah? So if this was introduced several weeks ago, like one and a half month, then I guess people would understand. But now, actually, it's, uh, it's the question, uh, why now, actually? Now you see numbers dropping so rapidly. Um, yeah, people are not sure. And as I said, because the restrictions were relaxed two weeks ago or three weeks ago, um, people were completely surprised by this news. So I guess a lot of people are now stuck in the Netherlands and a lot of companies are without crucial employees. But do you have some sympathy for the, for the administration? Because what do they do? Do they update the high risk, the risk by week by week? In that case, it's really hard for people to plan or do they do it month by month. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a real conundrum, isn't it? Of course, it's very difficult eh, to, uh, to manage in a pandemic situation, to create policy. So to a certain degree, there is, there is sympathy. I think there would be a lot more sympathy uh, if there is uh, basically more, more transparency on why certain uh, measures are taken uh, and perhaps also uh, when there's more predictability. So if, for example, a roadmap can be created of how can we get out of this crisis and that is lacking. Uh, our, that's what our members say. So mm. that is what I really uh, miss. Because do, do you have one in the Netherlands? What's the, what's the plan in the Netherlands? Sure, we, we have an, a roadmap in the Netherlands. I uh, have to admit that also that one eh, is, is, uh, yeah, mm. is, is difficult. Um, but um, well, what we are missing here is also predictability and transparency. But isn't it the case in Europe generally that life is just going on as normal? People are driving across borders, moving around, despite cases fluctuating? 
sure, normal life is now slowly returning in Europe, so uh, people have some perspective again. I think a big reason is, is the vaccination rate. Um, and that people see that uh, although you can get infected, even with a vaccine, uh, the chance you end up in hospital is much lower, is, 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 uh, is incredibly lower. So the risk is much slimmer. And so it's now more being dealt, uh, for example, as, as a regular flu mm. instead of a real pandemic. All right, some, some comments from listeners. Uh, Ray says, the criteria for determining how a country fits into a group is very unclear. Ireland is a good example. They've been in Group A since the beginning of 2021, even though they now have one of the highest vaccination rates in Europe. There's no clear pathway of how to move from 21 days to 14 days. That's uh, from Ray. Um, Peter says, for many months I followed the talk and experts on endless COVID discussions. Uh, of all the commentary on the subject, that of Ben Cowling has been by far the most rational, balanced, weighing up risks, probabilities, cost-benefits. Why isn't he advising Hong Kong government rather than the so-called experts who seem gripped by fear rather than rational facts and weighing up costs and benefits and factual realities? Zero infection is a utopian fantasy. That's uh, from Peter. Uh, Emrys says that through its recent economic and COVID policies, the CCP appears to be intentionally closing off China from the rest of the world to concentrate on internal issues. Of course, there is minimal scientific evidence to support Hong Kong's draconian quarantine measures. However, we are now obliged to follow our masters in Beijing. So expect little change until matters improve on the mainland. That's uh, from Emrys. Uh, and, OK, um, Eric says, I've seen some non-peer-reviewed studies suggesting that taking ibuprofen or paracetamol uh, after or right before vaccination could lower the formation of antibodies. Has Dr. Cowling studied this? What's his recommendation for people who feel symptoms after the vaccine? Should they take ibuprofen, paracetamol, aspirin, or better wait for symptoms to go? Would you recommend people to avoid these medications during the two weeks after vaccination? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've think? seen the same research. I'm interested in that myself. Um, I, I don't know if it's a real effect or not, but uh, certainly there's a there's an immunological theory of why maybe a fever's in a way good for you if you have a fever after a vaccination if you're taking a fever suppressant then you're, you're you're kind of holding your body back from her full response to the vaccination but if there is an effect i don't think it would be a big effect and uh, having a fever is not very nice so i think if if you are having a fever after vaccination then you don't and you don't like it then feel free to take paracetamol ibuprofen but i don't suggest i'm not a medical doctor of course Hugh, but <laughs> i don't think it's necessary to take a painkiller before going to get vaccinated i think wait and see how you get on and if you after you know a day or two after the jab if you really think you need a, a painkiller then take it don't worry about the antibody response because it's not going to be affected that much all right some more comments uh, s says regarding uh, invermectin there could be side effects like black fungus Maybe despite the long trials, sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Black fungus became very common among patients being treated in hospitals in India. India. Mm. Uh, and um, hang on, there's a segue there. Uh, Alok says, uh, good morning. Not clear why distinctions are being made relocation of vaccination. Even if one gets vaccinated with a WHO-recognised vaccine, if it's not taken in an SRA country, Hong Kong government is not recognising it. China and Hong Kong are themselves not in the SRA list. For example, if one's taken two doses of Covishield, which is the local brand name for Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, they can't come to Hong Kong. What is the SRA? Do you, do you know that? SRA uh, is, it in, is it SRA India? It, it may be the Indian vaccine. 
the Indian version of AstraZeneca. It's, a, it's an SRA country. Oh, an SRA country. That's the, the, the approval, the stringent regulatory approval countries um, where, where the, the WHO has said those are the countries where they'll, they'll, they'll put more weight in the vaccine uh, approvals. But, I mean, in the short term, I can understand why we want to be a little bit strict on, on people coming in. But uh, given that now there's not a big distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated people, I would actually think that there's good evidence that a blanket 14-day quarantine is okay. And I, I liked the idea before of having a special incentive for people to get vaccinated to say you could have a shorter quarantine if you've been vaccinated, even though in the short term there may be a slightly increased risk of cases coming in from time to time. We can deal with that. And if we can incentivize vaccination to get the coverage up to a high level, that's, that means we can go back to normal more quickly. So I, I think that would be, that would be uh, better. But of course, if you're going the other way and you're going for zero COVID, then, then the longer quarantines are going to discourage people from leaving in the first place and then coming back. And uh, so I, I can understand the rationale from a different point of view, but uh, I, I'm a strong advocate for, for getting back to normal sooner. Okay. Um, CW says, why do you, did these experts not consider the possibility the recent infection happened locally in the hotel? They failed to do their job properly and caused chaos. Can the government stop listening to these experts and only listen to Benjamin Cowling, who seems to say sound and rational uh, advice? Um, uh, LP says, I am becoming increasingly alarmed by the way the Hong Kong government is dealing with COVID. COVID in this world to stay. We will never get to zero COVID in this world now. We need to start dealing with it as such and work out how to get back to normal as soon as possible, not by going backwards with the quarantine laws and treating people like criminals. How can a place like Hong Kong be treating people like this? They're not helping their case to get people vaccinated here. as there's no difference in the way they treat people who are vaccinated here. They've made, they have not made the obvious positive conclusion about the people who are double vaccinated vaccinated with BioNTech and asymptomatic. This means the vaccination is working. They may have the Delta variant, but they didn't even know about they had it. Surely this positive result from being vaccinated should be the thing the Hong Kong government concentrates on to encourage the people here to get jabbed. And uh, Doug says, the, hi, the logic of extending quarantine for medium-risk countries from 7 to 14 days, apparently because the domestic helper was found positive after a seven-day quarantine, defeats me. It appears she was infected while under quarantine in the hotel. So on the face of it, extending hotel quarantine to 14 days doubles the risk of cross uh, infection. Uh, that's uh, from Doug. Thank you very much in, indeed uh, for that. Uh, Alan says you are again reading out more anti-vaxxer conspiracy nonsense. The vaccine doesn't work. Dot, dot, dot. Freedom, DNA, experimental. On Facebook at least I can block such garbage but you are amplifying it to a huge audience. Studies show that even if you do debunk a lie and you usually don't, the more people hear this junk the more some will believe it and discount uh, all the experts. That comes from Alan. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Alan. Um, the, the, in general, our approach uh, is that the, the guests that we have on, um, are uh, we, we try and ensure that they're authoritative and they're informed and they're relevant and they know what they're talking about, basically, and so that they will give uh, advice uh, and comment which is uh, trustworthy. Uh, when it comes to the listeners, uh, and the, if there are factual errors, I will try and point them out. Um, but otherwise, um, you don't. There's no reason to believe uh, somebody who says something uh, on the internet, and you have to bear that in mind. So that's in general our approach, Alan. If that, if that helps, and um, thank you very much indeed for joining.
joining us once again, Professor Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. And thank you very much indeed to Tom Backer, who's uh, General Manager of the Dutch Chamber of Commerce uh, in Hong Kong. Um, I wanted to talk finally today about uh, plastic uh, cutlery. Um, uh, MT says, during my 21-day quarantine in June, the three meals a day were delivered in a styrofoam box with a set of plastic spoon and fork. Informed by hotel, can't change as provided by outside caterer. The government needs to put in place a requirement that all meal boxes are biodegradable and no cutlery uh, is uh, required. Uh, James, uh, in an email, says, How is it the government can sweep through Hong Kong with Taliban-like speed to snuff out anything that suggests democracy or freedom, but when it comes to dealing with environmental issues, we need endless, pointless consultation, blah, blah, blah. I'm sick to death with the Hong Kong administration's indifference, while an increasing number of citizens are becoming aware and active with recycling and their choices in products. Why is the administration and the clowns in the Environment Bureau stuck in a 1980s mentality? Please try your best to get someone from the administration to explain on back chat. Remember the commitments from Matthew Chung and Paul Chan for officials to appear. Um, thank you very much indeed for those comments, bringing us to uh, our second topic uh, and the consultation over the use of uh, plastic cutlery uh, in Hong Kong. We're joined now by uh, Leanne Tam, who's a campaigner with uh, Greenpeace. Uh, good morning to you, Ms Tam. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. First of all, let's just get an idea of the, the, the size of this problem. Um, you're talking about like 2,000 pieces uh, a year for every, everybody in Hong Kong. It's a huge number, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Compared to the UK and, and Germany, it's such a huge number. And it, 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 the plastic you per capita. What, what sort of thing are we talking about here? What sort of uh, plastic? The cutlery, the disposable plastic cutlery. That, that's like 2,000 per person, 365 days in the year. That's almost three pieces per person per day. Yeah. Uh, actually, we have conducted a survey to investigate the delivery of single-use plastic in Hong Kong. Uh, the sample target is for chain store. And then we use the data to project the, the numbers of disposable plastic delivered by those chain stores in one year. We find that they're like... 500 million pieces of single-use plastic were just delivered by those four chain stores. So that's, so that's what, especially like spoons, uh, styrofoam mm -hmm. boxes, plastic yeah. cups? Yeah, plastic cups and the food container and the lids. And actually, when you buy a, like a lunch set or breakfast from those chain stores, actually there's a, many small pieces of plastic cutlery and and since most of them are pre-packaged and they will uh, put into your takeaway bag, even you don't want it. Because we have a survey with a CUHK professor. Professor M find that, uh, like, they have interviewed 336 people online, over half saying that they will actively request the restaurants need not to provide the disposable plastic cutlery, but uh, like 50% of the interviewers say that even they express their will, the restaurant will still put those cutlery into their takeaway bags. Yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah uh, so that's why we think that uh, the Restaurants need more uh, guidelines and restrictions from the government and stop delivering those um, and, and unnecessary plastic cutlery to their customers. 
Because if you go to Pret-a-Manger, they already put the fork in the bag unless you say, mm. don't do it. They automatically yeah. do it. Yeah, that's, um, I think that is one of the reasons why there's so much disposable plastic cutlery uh, per capita in Hong Kong. Yeah, because the uh, restaurant just didn't sense it is a serious problem. What's the government proposal involve? Is that just stopping it? Stop stop using it or what? Yeah, actually the government proposed there are two phases uh, to phase out the single-use plastic in Hong Kong. For the first phase, they proposed that no more disposable plastic cutlery uh, in dining service and also there should not be any straws, uh, plastic straws, cutlery and the stirrer differ to the customer when we buy the takeaway thing. And for the phase two, they suggest that uh, they will also phase out the uh, food container, the cups and the lids. Uh, however, there's actually no concrete timetable for the phase two. But even 2025 for phase one seems a very long time away. Yes, actually it's not that difficult for the restaurant of providing their disposable calorie in the dining surface. Think that actually Greenpeace think that actually for the phase one can be uh, executed in 2023. Yeah, and for 2025, we think that we can execute the the phase two things. What what about I mean some of the people the caterers and so on say that they're just it, well for a start it's much more expensive to get uh, biodegradable mm. or uh, re reusable um, alternatives. What about that? Mm. Actually, we don't support the biodegradable things because those uh, cutlery actually need more time and experiments to prove that they can really biodegradable in the ocean and in the landfill. Because like, I know that most of the products will only be degradable in a specific temperature or a specific environment. Which but but like if, they're made of, if they're made of wood or paper or cardboard or something oh, like that, they oh, will... You mean, you mean those things? Oh, okay. But uh, we're not uh, saying... We can't... Do you think that is one kind of alternative, but it's not the best one because it's also uh, like a single-use one. It will also uh, like a burden to the landfill. So can green groups have a joint statement suggesting the government should have, should input more money and resources to develop the reusable category rental service for their commercial sector and the citizens? Also, they should have a program to encourage the citizens in Hong Kong to bring their own reusable cutlery to buy takeaway goods. Well, exactly. They remember to bring an umbrella if it's going to rain, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if you just bring along with you a, one set of cutlery, actually, it's not that bad. But for those, uh, maybe they are not working in the office, they may work outside. We encourage the government to just like support the restaurants and bar to provide some uh, reusable cutlery that can went to them, and they may have some deposit give to the restaurant, and when they return the box, they can get back the deposit. Do, does anyone do that? Is that practical? That sounds like a lot of bother. Mm, yeah, we think it's possible because we look at the uh, cases in foreign countries like Canada. Uh, the government is have a concrete time. They were saying that oh, two oh two one, there are no more straws and stirrers, something like that, and there should be no more plastic waste in two oh three oh. And then there is five new startup company. To, uh, like to invent their rental system for their uh, reusable tableware. So we think that if the government have a concrete timetable, have a, have a target, and then it can show, it can let the commercial sector uh, to be 
to be honest, if there is a chance for them to earn money, they will invest it. And like we think that it's really possible to set up a reusable uh, rental system in Hong Kong. Okay, and this is un- there's a public consultation at the moment on this topic. Sorry? There's a public consultation, is there, at the moment? Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, we have a public consultation, and the deadline is the 8th of September. We are uh, urging the citizens to join us and send, uh, uh, send their views to the government. Okay. We think Greenpeace think that 2023 is possible for the phase one, and 2025 is uh, already enough have already enough time to ban the phase two plastic. And actually, at Greenpeace got a website, and we have a, a campaign uh, review form for the citizens to fill in. You can just use one minute, okay. and then you can stop the uh, particularly in Hong Kong. All right. Well, Liantem from Greenpeace, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Let's close with an email from Martin B. This is relating to our discussion uh, about uh, reclamation in, uh, in the harbour. Uh, Martin B. says, Unfortunately, during the discussion yesterday on reclamation in the harbour area, in the Kaitak Quintong harbour area, the issue of ventilation was not mentioned. Quintong is a densely packed district with multiple problems caused by poor ventilation. There will be further deterioration going forward as the older, medium-rise buildings are gradually redeveloped into high-rises, placed on large podiums. High building volume increases the thermal capacity, capability, and reduces urban sky view factor, which reduces long-term radiation back to the sky, causing urban heat island. This creates higher thermal stress during the summer and the need for good air ventilation to mitigate the negative thermal effects. The existing wind condition in the area mainly relies on the existing road network and open spaces. Construction works for the Kaitak development is undergoing. Uh, Having regard to the annual and summer prevailing winds, the developments in the South Apron and runway areas will affect the wind environment of Kowloon Bay and Natal Kok. In addition, the walls of concrete going up on Kai Tak will have a strong negative impact on ventilation to Kowloon City to its north. The waterway and wide open promenade provide a wind corridor to allow ventilation to penetrate into the hinterland. Filling the waterway with additional high rises would block much of the current ventilation to both Kuntong and Kowloon City. A particular concern should be the location for the children's hospital that's close to multi-lane highways. The spot and empty face and fill it up vision of our legislators completely ignores the impact of climate change and the urgent need to improve ventilation to crowded urban districts, not further block wind paths. That's from Martin B. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Anna, thank you very much indeed. Here's the weather before we go. It's a very hot weather warning. Sunny periods and a few showers forecast for today. It's going to be very hot. 30 Celsius at the moment. Relative humidity is now at 78%. The 2021 Election Committee Subsector Ordinary Elections will be held on September 19th. Voters should wear a mask, have their temperature checked and sanitise their hands. A special queue will be set up for persons aged 70 or above or with disabilities and pregnant women. Voters must show their ID cards. Staff will use the electronic poll register for identification and issuing ballots. Voters should place the marked ballot in an envelope and put it into the ballot box. 934, the news now with Vicky Wong. Police have charged a 58-year-old man for raping and robbing a girl 38 years ago following a breakthrough in forensics technology. The incident happened on January 20th, 1983. The government has tightened the rules for new arrivals who will face 14 days of quarantine even if they return a positive COVID antibody test instead of seven days at present. Chief Executive Carrie Lam says the government is following expert advice to err 